Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Christopher Rasmussen. Chris is a partner in Foley's Chicago office with a practice focused on transactional matters. In this discussion, Chris reflects on growing up in Slidell, Louisiana, attending the University of Southern Mississippi for undergrad and the Indiana University Marr School of Law. This conversation is one that epitomizes the purpose behind the path and the practice, which, as I promise in the trailer to the show, is to share those things that you're not going to find on lawyer bios and to see there really is no prototypical path to law. Well, Chris does this in spades. Now, some of his prior experience is listed on his bio, but it is amazing to get him to elaborate on the many years he spent working as a professional musician, arranger, and music teacher, including the two years he spent performing in a Tony and Emmy award-winning musical. So I get Chris to talk about that and then talk about why after doing all of that, he decided to go to law school. And interestingly, you also hear a bit about his wife's path because his wife, Amy, also went to law school at the same time as him and spent a number of years practicing at Foley. So I get Chris to unpack his decisions to attend law school, his decision to join Foley. He discusses how he focused on a corporate practice and what his practice looks like today. And then we wrap the show up with Chris providing wonderful insight on the importance of being flexible while you're on the path to your goals. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Rasmussen. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to start this how I start every show, which is by asking you to give your professional introduction. Thanks, Alexis. And thanks for having me on the show. I've been a great listener and admirer of the podcast. So it's you know, it's nice to actually have my first moment trying this out. So I am a partner in the business law department and the transactions practice group. Most of my practice, I'd say about 70% is mergers and acquisitions, securities, transactions, finance, venture capital play a smaller part. Again, the bulk of it is mergers and acquisitions on both the buy side and sell side. And I do, frankly, a lot of outside general counsel work because I have to know a little bit about so many different areas. I end up helping with a lot of commercial transactions, helping staff teams on a variety of other matters. So that's what I do every day. So we're going to unpack all of that, but not for a little while. First, we're going to talk a little bit about about you. Although I have to set this up and just say, I'm so happy you're here because Chris, you know, I've been chasing to get you on the show for a while. And I just think you have a very interesting background. So, you know, no pressure in that, but I'm thrilled we're going to dive into this. So first things first, Chris, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern Louisiana. I was born in San Diego when my father was in the Navy, but at the age of six months, we moved back to Louisiana, which is where my family's from. I grew up in Kenner, which is a small suburb outside of New Orleans until I was about five. That's where the New Orleans airport is. And then we moved across Lake Pontchartrain to Slidell, which is it's on the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain. And my dad commuted to New Orleans every day for, I don't know, 15 years across the lake. So that's where I grew up. I had no idea. Not that I would know, but I find that surprising for some reason. But can you give me a little snapshot of life growing up in the 
New Orleans area. So if I would have found you in, say, late elementary school or early middle school, what were you into? What were your hobbies? My biggest hobby was music, but I had a lot of I had a lot of hobbies at that time. I was in the Scouts, which was kind of a long tradition going back to my my grandfather was an Eagle Scout, my step grandfather was an Eagle Scout, my father, my older brother, we all were involved in that. So I was pretty heavily involved up until maybe my first or second year of high school. So camping, doing a lot of those types of things, and then playing music. I was a drummer and a percussionist. My I also had that in my family. My father was a drummer from a young age, but I I took it a lot farther than either my father or my brother did. I'd say that occupied most of my time. So I don't know if there's a connection there, but when I think of, I've not spent a lot of time in Louisiana, but I've been to New Orleans a number of times. And of course, I, I think in many ways, it's, you know, famous for music. Do you think there was that sort of just any sort of influence due to growing up where you grew up and that connection to music? Or was it more the familial connection like you mentioned? That's a good point because I actually think it was around everywhere. I went to Mardi Gras parades from a young age. There was music going on at all times everywhere. Music and food are kind of the mainstays of Louisiana culture and New Orleans culture in particular. And I distinctly remember like, going to parades and hearing marching bands coming by and that sound of like being up close to drums as they pass by just sort of got into my I felt it in my body I wanted to be part of that and I think that sort of hooked me at a pretty young age so when I was in fifth grade I started playing drums and thrived at that pretty early on so let's fast forward to say high school I'm assuming just based on what I know of your bio that you're still into music but tell me about Activities in high school, as well as that transition to college, how did you figure out where you were going to go to college and where did you go? I don't have a great story for how I picked my college because they came and recruited pretty heavily at my high school. I went to the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It's about 45 minutes away from where I grew up. They came to Slidell. They came to, we had maybe three high schools in the town where I grew up. And they recruited heavily there, especially for their honors college. And I was doing very well academically and was heavily involved in music and scouts and a number of other things. So I think I was recruited pretty heavily. And at the time, I didn't quite know yet what I wanted to do. What I knew is that I wanted to do everything and try to do it all really well. This is a funny story, but I think probably from the time I was a freshman in high school, I knew that I wanted to simultaneously do something related to business and the arts. I wanted to be a performer who was like playing in a Broadway orchestra pit, but also somehow have another separate high paying business job somewhere. My father was a computer scientist and my mother was on the planning commission for our city. I thought it was interesting what they did. I wanted to succeed as a musician. But I knew I didn't want that to be the only thing that I did. So going to college, I surprisingly did not get recruited as much for music. There's a very good music program at Southern Mississippi. But I was really recruited for the Honors College. I had a really high ACT score. And you know, probably like most of the lawyers you've talked to, people tend to do well academically. And the Honors College was this really great school within a school at USM where you got a a really focused liberal arts education, but on the campus of you know, more traditional, larger state school. USM is not a huge school. It's I always marvel at 
the bargain that we got going to school there. It did allow me to go and study music and business together. And being the honors college, I loved piecing all that together at, at the same time. That's interesting. You mentioned that you had all those threads you knew you wanted to bring together, because I think as we move forward, people hear that you, in fact, were able to do that. Although I am curious, and maybe this is my Midwestern bias coming out right now. You don't sound like someone who grew up in New Orleans and you know went to college in Mississippi. So did you ever have you know what people would think of as like a stereotypical Southern accent or no? I'm sure I had a bit of a Louisiana accent when I was growing up, but I think I always knew that I wanted to be a person of the world and eventually live somewhere else. I love being from where I'm from and I'm very proud of that. I think my accent just sort of naturally changed as I, I made my way slowly north. You mentioned that maybe you got a bit of a Midwestern bias. I did. Grew up in Louisiana. I went to college in Mississippi. I eventually moved to Texas for grad school in music, and we can get to that later, I'm sure, and ended up in Indiana, New York, London, and Chicago. So I think I just, my accent just morphed over time. So my family's all from South Carolina, and I'm the only one who, you know, grew up in the North. So growing up mostly in Wisconsin, so we'd go down to, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, or Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I was told, I sounded funny and I talked too fast. But I do like to ask that because I just think we make all kinds of assumptions. You can imagine as the director of diversity and inclusion, you know, I'm not saying those assumptions are good things, but that you just can't tell where someone's from just by either reading their bio or hearing them speak. So I like teasing that out a bit. But okay. So we left off, you were in college. So then what was your actual major? You mentioned the things you knew you were interested in, but what'd you end up ma majoring in? I got my bachelor's degree in music, but the honors college gives a, a separate degree. So my, I have a bachelor in music degree with a major in percussion performance and what they called music industry at the time, which was essentially like music plus a minor in business. And then I graduated from the honors college. So I got like a Latin distinction because of my GPA through the honors college. So that was my actual major. That's my degree. I stuck around at USM right after that. I still had no idea sort of what I wanted to do with this weird combination of skills and credentials. It's not law school. It's not screaming law school to me yet, but we'll see when we get there. <laughs> and law school was not even a blip on the radar at that point. It was nothing like that. But my dad had an MBA and I was I knew these folks in the business school who were saying, oh, you should stick around and and get an MBA, which is unusual. Most MBA programs do not want you to do it straight out of college. In retrospect, it's, I'm sure I could have gotten more out of it if I had waited and come back later, but I had a really good GMAT score and I was teaching assistant for an economics professor and got an MBA for free, which is, you kind of can't beat that price. Well, now we're at one of my favorite parts of everyone's story in the podcast where I just get to say things like, so then what happens? What's next? I was working on my MBA and actually really, it was a very different experience from what I had had because it was the first time I was focused on being in a professional school. But true to my nature, I still wanted to do other things outside of that. I actually played in four professional orchestras across the Southeast while I was working on my MBA. So I would go to like economics and management classes in the morning, and then I would go do a rehearsal in Baton Rouge, which was like three hours away. I'd like zip around in my old ratty car. I, I got way too many speeding tickets. 
you can edit that part out. I was playing at Louisiana Philharmonic in New Orleans, the Baton Rouge Symphony in Baton Rouge. I played in the Natchez Opera, and I played in the Mobile Opera and the Meridian Symphony. I don't think that my business teachers necessarily approved of that, but everybody's got stuff outside of school. That is a lot of things to juggle while in business school, four different groups to play with. But okay, so you do that. And then what happens after that? You get your MBA and then what's next? So I'm still sort of like, that was me elevating the business side of the things that I wanted to do. And then I said, well, naturally, since I want to combine music and business, now I need to elevate the music side of what I do. So I had my MBA and like all MBA students, I said, why don't I go get a master's degree in percussion performance at the University of North Texas? So I Signed up for that and uh, ended up going to start work on a master's program in Denton, Texas, where I lived for a year. So this would have been, gosh, 1998, I think. We've got our undergrad degree, we've got our MBA, and now we're getting a master's. Okay. In music, as most MBA students do. Usually, yes. That's what one usually does. So why the master's? And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do with it once you were done with that program? I knew still at that time that I wanted to find a way to combine performing and arts administration or some sort of combination of business and performing, if, if I could piece those together somehow. My girlfriend at the time, now my wife for 23 years, was doing a master's program at North Texas at the time, and I knew that I wanted to be close to her. I looked at a couple other graduate programs, but ultimately moved to North Texas in, in part to be with, with her, and also because it's just a really highly respected music program. That and Indiana University go back and forth between being the two biggest music programs in the country. It's got a fantastic jazz program. It's got a really good classical program, good marching band, all the stuff that I liked doing. And I thought that I could continue to f- find some situation where I could combine that performing desire and also my my business skills. So I did not graduate from North Texas. I actually uh, was there after my first year and got a call from uh, someone who ran the percussion program at a what was a drum and bugle corps long prior to that called the Star of Indiana out of Bloomington, Indiana. And they said, we're taking what we do and turning it into a, a stage show. We'd like you to come and sort of audition to be part of this new show we're putting together, which we're going to call Blast. It will be a little bit like Stomp or Blue Man Group or River Dance, all things that were really huge at the time. That was all starting to explode. So they said, we're going to put this together. It's going to be an amazing stage show. We're throwing a lot of money behind it. And we're going to open the show in London in the fall of 1999. How would you like to be part of that? So we left Denton, Texas. I took that opportunity and moved to Bloomington, Indiana. I got married to Amy while we were in Bloomington. And we realized, oh, if we're going to move to London, I think we should probably be married. So we did that and moved to London in the fall of 1999, stuck it out there for a while, loved being overseas, was perfectly fine having left North Texas and doing the thing that at the age of 10, I said, this is what I want to be doing. But so you were involved in both the, was it the creation of the show and then the performance of it as well? I was, I was actually composed some of the music for the show. I arranged some of the music for the show. I was one of two player coaches within the percussion department. So I had to like 
teach and train a bunch of performers and do pretty minimal business things like you know manage inventory, manage purchasing for heads and sticks and things like that. It's not like MBA level tasks, but it was still, it was what I wanted to do at a young age at the highest level. We did that show in London for close to a year. We moved to the US, lived in Bloomington again while the show did a tour. I played the Kennedy Center for four weeks. I played what was the Ford Oriental in Chicago for two weeks. I, I can't remember the new name of the theater now. I played Milwaukee. I think that was probably the first time I had ever been to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Played Detroit, and basically just traveled all around. And then we patched together an opportunity to go to Broadway. So after all of that, after a, a close to a year of touring, we took the show to Broadway. And you know we were living living in New York. My wife started working in the marketing department of the production company that was actually putting on our show. She got her job there. And again, I'm doing what I wanted to do at a very high level. We're playing classical music and jazz and Latin music on stage while sort of dancing and wearing crazy costumes. And I got to play two hours a show, eight times a week. I was in the best shape of my life. It was pretty fun to do. It won a Tony, is my understanding. It did win a Tony. The, the show won the first ever Tony for special theatrical performance, which was, uh, there was a controversy the year before we were eligible for the Tonys, where the show Contact, which was a dance show with taped music, won Best Musical. And, you know, all of the, the Broadway community said, well, that's not fair. People need to be singing. You need to have a live orchestra. So they created this new category of special theatrical event. And we were the first show to ever win that, that award. The show also won an Emmy for choreography because it was taped for PBS and the show won an Emmy for that. I had nothing to do with that. That is so cool. And I'm trying not to get overly excited or gush too much as a, a bit of a Broadway nerd. Also, my, my grandfather was a, like a jazz trumpet player. So I would grow up. I spent time the summers. My parents would ship me down south because both my grandparents were teachers and he was also taught band and lessons. And then, of course, for a long time would travel. So I have a, an appreciation for both these things. I want to be like, oh, my gosh, that is so cool because it is. It's so cool. But it's, you know, it's also incredible because then you at some point decided to go to law school. So I want to connect the dots for me because right now, why are you a lawyer? What happened, Chris? <laughs> well, the connection for law school really, I think, comes down to Amy as most of the best things in my life come down to Amy. So she was also a musician. She and I met as uh, we met on the marching band field in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. She's a flutist. And she knew really around the time that we were moving to London that she had decided not to become an orchestral flutist, which is what she had wanted to be prior to that. And the thing that she was always interested in as a child was that she wanted to be Claire Huxtable. That was like this one, an amazing woman that she admired. Amy really has no lawyers in her family. I don't either, but she wanted to go to law school. And she actually took the LSAT while we lived in London. And our plan was we'd finish the London run of Blast and then move back and she would go to law school and I would do something else. I, I thought, oh, I don't know, I'll get a PhD in economics or something. We ended up deferring for a little while while I moved to the tour and then did Broadway. And by the time it looked like the show was wrapping up, this was actually, oh gosh, this was September of 2001 is when our show, is when our show in New York wrapped. And I was scheduled to take the LSAT at Fordham University in, I don't know, I think October 1st, 2001. 
we were living in New York at the time and they told us that our show was closing and that we we're going to be moving to a different touring model and perhaps going back to Europe. They told us that on Sunday, September 9th, 2001. So Tuesday morning was going to be our discussion of who wants to stay with the show, who's going to do other things, who's going to stay in New York, what are you going to try? So that Tuesday morning, I had what was essentially my exit interview. We were all coming in, you know, five minutes at a time. It was a pretty big cast. It was about 70 or 80 of us. And then we realized what was going on. So we had actually planned to stay in New York at least for a while and then apply to law schools for the following year. But you know, September 11th sort of changed everybody's plans. Nobody was hiring. Everybody's sort of collectively traumatized and managing things in, in their own way. I did stick around. I did take the LSAT in New York that October, and then we ended up moving back to Indiana. So Amy and I moved to Indiana. We lived there, waited tables for about a year while we were applying for jobs. I continued to arrange music, which I actually kept doing until I was a fairly junior partner at Foley as a hobby. I don't do that anymore. But we were basically just like trying to find other things to, to make some money for a while while we were in Bloomington. And I didn't answer your original question, which was, how did you get to law school? It started with Amy. It was what she had wanted to do. And as I was watching her study for the LSAT and prepping for that, I grew up loving logic puzzles. My dad was a computer scientist, so he got a computer science degree in Louisiana in the 60s. So he was heavily into like logic games. He's a software nerd, you know? So when I was helping Amy practice for the LSAT, I thought, oh, this is like really interesting. I love these things. I really miss what I did as a business student. I missed being able to combine in any given day a little bit of performance, a little bit of analytics, a little bit of math, a little bit of writing. How can I have a life that is like that? Why don't we apply to law school together? So we ended up applying to law school together while living in Bloomington, Indiana. As you know, I did end up going to law school in Bloomington, Indiana at IU, but we applied to, I think we jointly applied to maybe two, 12 law schools across the country. We knew that we were going to have to triangulate a little bit and figure out like, you know, where are we both going to get into the same law school? We want to be together at the same school. How are we going to do that? And um, we weren't expecting that it was going to be IU. And then we went and sat in on some classes and absolutely fell in love with IU. It, it's a fantastic school. I feel like we got such an amazing value there. Really excellent teachers. And you couldn't ask for like a more beautiful Midwestern college city. It connects some dots for me as well, because I first met you when I was a summer associate at Foley back in 2006. And I think Amy was still at Foley then. And so I don't often run into spouses who were same law school, same year. I have seen the, you know, my wife, my husband went and two or three years later, I was like, I could do that, you know, and then followed. But to both be there at the same time is very interesting. And of course, I think one of the first calls we had after I returned to Foley was about, we started talking about the musical selections for some particular event at the firm. But so what? what's that like? You start law school together. How was that adjustment for you? Well, first, we were told by the Dean of Students do not be in the same section. We've had married couples who have done that before. It's such a bad idea. Inevitably, one spouse ends up doing really well and the other one has a tougher time. You really should not be in the same section. And we said, 
no, we love each other and support each other and we're, we're each other's best friends. We're going to be great as a couple being in the same section. So we were in the same section. We were each other's pretty much sole study partners for that entire first year. We sat in the front row of contracts together. We were that couple, like just. I can't decide if that really is like helps and makes a relationship stronger or if it's a major test. I can't, it can go either way, <laughs> that law school experience. Could have gone either way. It made us stronger. We, um, because you're learning a new way to think, it was great that we were doing that together. And we felt like we had our conversations. We were able to talk about things together. Obviously we were in, we started veering off and choosing different courses after our first year in law school. And you'd already navigated so much, by the way, together at this point. Oh, we had. We had already been, whenever people realized, like when we were interviewing for jobs, they said, oh, like you guys must have met in law school. Or and we said, no, we were actually married close to five years before we went to law school together. And we had waited tables together. We had worked for this show together. We had done so many things together at that point that it was, uh, it actually worked really well. And we did both thrive and we both made law review and we both graduated high up in the class. And ultimately, we both ended up getting called back to come interview at Foley together. And we got Michael Small left a voicemail on our answering machine in Bloomington, Indiana, saying, hey, I'd like to invite you, Amy Strong and Chris. I see that you guys have the same phone number. We have different last names. I see that you guys have the same phone number. We'd like to invite you both to, to apply. So... So we did. It's really amazing. It's great. It could be awkward. It could have been, well, you know, she got invited here and I didn't, but you guys stuck with each other through each stage, including the same firm. So why did you decide on Foley at that point? How does Foley and Lardner come on the, to the scene? So uh, we did a lot of interviews through the OCI process and a lot of callbacks. And with no exceptions, maybe there was one exception, somebody who's long, long ago gone from Foley. Every person we met at Foley was like a, a real person who had other interests and who had like deliberately chosen the law and deliberately chosen a life in the law that, that they loved. And they were like that, that character that they had was infectious. They were, I know it's cliche to say I chose the firm because of the people, but we absolutely chose the firm because of the people and everyone that we that we both met we interviewed in san francisco as well and san francisco was a smaller office amy being smarter than i was and uh, and much better than i was did get a she got a summer associate position in san francisco i did not i did not get a position there but she graciously reached out and tried to see if she could come to chicago too so that we both ended up in the chicago summer program so I owe it to Amy, who is very generous and bent over backwards to do things to make it work for me. So you summer together, and I'm going to speed past because we have to talk a little bit about your actual practice. You've been practicing for a while now. but And so for listeners, we've had a few summer associates on or more junior attorneys who can just kind of dive into how their experience was, but more recently. So how do you decide your practice area? You know, presumably you summered with Foley in Chicago. You guys go back to IU, you finish up, you come back to Foley then what happens? What's life like as a junior associate? What's your practice group? Well, we really had to choose our practice group at the end of the summer program because you know that's how slots are chosen. That's the way it works. And 
at Foley, we always encourage everyone, with the exception of IP, if you've got folks who have you know, a hard science background and are truly trying to be on the patent prosecution side, that's obviously different. I really rode the fence throughout that entire summer program. And we got to the end of the summer program. I was somebody who had an MBA. I was somebody who sort of came in. I wasn't exactly slotted for transactional law, but I think it was sort of a, a tacit understanding. I think the folks who were in the business group said, we've pegged Chris. Everybody else in my class, they all 100% strongly wanted to be litigators. I was the person who ended that summer saying, yeah, I think I'm leaning like 70% transactional and maybe 30% litigation. Again, I had the MBA, I had that sort of at least coursework background. And when you're a summer associate, you do real projects, but you're never going to like work a deal from beginning to end. It's rare that you're going to get the question, work through a problem and solve it all over the course of that summer. So I think it was still hard to envision myself as a transactional attorney when I was a summer associate. That's, by the way, a really good point. I think to just tease out a bit for the law students, I think for the transactional work, it's harder to really get a sense as a summer associate because just the nature of the types of assignments and maybe the deal flow itself, like you said, you're not going to necessarily just see this one transaction through. Whereas litigation, pulling off different research assignments and, hey, could you write a section of a brief? I think it's just easier to get a little bit of a sense of what it's like to be a litigator. It's just harder as a transactional lawyer. And I think the things you do as a litigation summer associate are so close to what you do as a law student. It's that type of research and analysis and writing. It's like, here, I want you to research this area of jurisdictional law, or I'm trying to figure out the elements of this specific tort under West Virginia case law. Look that up for me. Give me a memo. We've all done that by the time we're summer associates. But being asked to sort of parachute into a transaction and be told, okay, we've got a letter of intent, and I need you to like we need to start working on a draft purchase agreement and piece together due diligence. I need you to, I don't need a full memo. I just want a quick and dirty analysis. You tell me the red flags that we need and what's going to impact the agreement. That is causing me anxiety right now. As somebody who, you know, I never was a, partly because I never was a corporate lawyer, but I'm like, I'm like term sheet, purchase agreement, letter of intent, those words get said. And you'll know as little as a person who's you know, just finished your first year of law school or second year of law school, as I would right now, if I was asked, if I was asked to do that. But no, that's right. It's just harder to get a sense for that. I do think maybe law schools close the gap. You know, I realize both you and I have been out of law school for a while. Certain schools may have more practical things going on, but I think that's exactly right. So then what was it like for you? You started fully as a first year, you're in the transactional group. And we're not going to, we can't march through year by year for you, but I'd love just like reflections on the early days. And then perhaps we can talk a little bit about as you get more senior and then your your current practice. So in the early days, I will say that Foley, we as a firm don't try to hire armies of junior associates to step in and- By the way, you can see it in our leverage. So when people pull stats on us, we're about one-to-one associate to partner ratio. So what you said is it bears out in our numbers. I like that as a junior associate because it meant I got to work with a lot of different partners on a lot of different types of transactions. And I like it as a partner because I like being able to go out and not tell a client, yeah, I'm going to do this deal for you, but really I'm not going to do it. I'm just I'm going to manage an army of first and second years who will do forms and not know a whole lot about what they're doing. It's I keep deal teams very lean and it means that associates learn more and it means that a client gets the benefit of 
partner wisdom and experience that you might not get if it's a highly leveraged law firm. So going back to my first few years, I would often work on an M&A transaction where it was me and a partner. If it was a small enough you know, mid-market deal, I worked on the acquisition of a securities broker dealer that was based in based in Boca Raton, and it was a small dollar value transaction, but really sophisticated and needed a lot of detail work. And I was sent by the partner down to Florida for a week to roll up my sleeves with the client and work through due diligence and get the agreement signed up and, and closed on a really short timetable. And I learned so much from that experience. Like every new deal that I worked on built on the one that was prior to that and sort of pushed me into the next and more interesting levels of experience. I know you mentioned when we first started that your practice is probably about 70% M&A. And you know, I know when I look at your bio, you do have a like I'd say a pretty well-rounded corporate practice and that also you have the finance and other sorts of expertise that corporate lawyers have. So how did your practice then develop over the years? Because I also know you're a member of a few different industry teams. And before we jumped on, we even talked a little bit how there was a time where you were doing things more in the sports arena. And I know there's some like maybe food and even music and there's, yeah, just talk about the growth of your practice area expertise. It really happened organically. It happened based on the types of work that that Foley had at the time and how I sort of shifted in my, you know, which deals was I interested in, which clients was I interested in. I started off doing, I'd say in my first two years, my M&A practice was a fair amount of manufacturing. We're in the Midwest, so quite a bit of that. Out of the Chicago, always had a long tradition of good work for securities broker dealers and also the, the regulated commodity futures market. There's some really fantastic global experts in that area. So I did my fair share of uh, acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions for securities companies. And that included like some registered investment advisors and investment companies as well. I did a little bit of food and beverage practice back then that started with, there was actually a Canadian food and bev company that was doing a bit of US M&A. And I did maybe one deal a year for them for my first my first several years. That's food and bev, securities. There were a number of technology companies at the time too. A lot of them were tied to the trading industry because that was huge in Chicago at the time. Tech has grown in Chicago since then. And, oh, you wanted to ask about sports. How did I get into the sports practice? It really came down to getting involved in one truly massive sports M&A transaction, which was the acquisition of the Chicago Cubs. I know we don't like to mention client specifics or anything like that. That probably occupied about a year and a half of my life. It was a really complicated transaction. It happened in, in the midst of the, uh, the global financial crisis. It was a really complicated structure that the sellers, which was the Tribune company, was owned by Sam Zell at the time through a pretty complicated employee stock ownership plan. It, it was truly so many levels of complexity stacked on top of each other to make that deal happen. I learned by drinking from the fire hose for a good year and a half straight. That was almost the only deal that I did for that year and a half. That's highly unusual at Foley, especially in the Chicago office. You usually do a, a really big mix of transactions. It was just an all-encompassing transaction. So. And then that led to that did lead to other deals 
after that, we did the acquisition of the Rangers and then the Dodgers, and uh, I, I ended up doing more and more in that area. Well, I appreciate you going through the trajectory because obviously you've been very intentional about your interests and the types of things you wanted to do to occupy your time. And I know when we talk to law students, it's find the practice area that you know best suits you. It's very important, but you can hear how things ebb and flow based on the city you're in, based on the economy, based on... So like the, this is not necessarily a science. It's more, I think, of an art to that. And someone who doesn't know how law firms work or that sort of flow works, I just think it's helpful for them to hear how a practice develops, not only based on your interests, that's very important, but also what there is available to do, which is based on a lot a lot of things. I'd love if you could take a few moments even just now to talk about what your practice looks like now. You talked about it, about it generally, but what are the main types of things you're working on these days? I represent companies in a variety of industries. I do still have that sort of broad focus, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of technology, I still do a fair amount of financial services and you know, broke securities companies and food and bev and a little bit of retail. But my clients come from all around the country and also out of Canada. I mentioned before that I had this one food and beverage client that I did work for very early on. That started to organically build into more and more contacts in Canada. And I would say out of the clients where I'm sort of the responsible billing partner or you know outside general counsel, half of them, if not more, come from Canada. And that just really sort of happened organically over time. Canada is a really broad, diverse economy, just like ours is. And we, when it comes to Canada, I also represent food and bev and technology and financial services and manufacturing from up there as well. You know, and you mentioned a term outside general counsel. Can you explain what that means, particularly for the, the law students who may not be familiar with it? I think you'll hear a lot of attorneys who do work for startup companies will often find that they are the only legal advisor to a company because it's a startup. They're on a skeleton crew. They've only got five to 10 people sometimes in the beginning. If one of them is a lawyer, great. Maybe that person is the general counsel. Often there is not a lawyer and they'll need somebody who's outside the company to help them think through the broad array of risks and opportunities that a general counsel needs to think about all the time. So you'll hear that in the startup world. I also often find myself being outside general counsel or an adjunct to general counsel for more mature companies as well. I think part of that comes from being a transactional attorney. When you do an M&A deal, you have to learn a little bit about everything that is impacting the company. And you work with a large team of specialists. I'll, you know, I'll look through, let's say we'll get a confidential information memorandum for a company that's being put on the market. And we'll look through and go, okay, what are the, is this a regulated company? Do they have owned real estate? What's their intellectual property like? Do they, do they have data privacy concerns? Are they direct to consumers? And we'll sort of figure out our staffing and who's the right fit, who are the right specialists for all of that. By thinking about that and thinking about it pretty much every day on every matter, I think I'd start to naturally shift toward getting questions of, hey, can you help us think through this broader issue about the strategy that we're thinking about for the next three years? What are we going to have to think about for that? I love that because it means that I'm dealing with many, many more people within the firm and outside the firm than I would otherwise. And it helps me think more broadly. Going back to that early idea of being a 10-year-old who had a ton of diverse interests and couldn't figure out how to put them together. It's now, now that I'm like 
47. I think that's how old I am. I am actually having to put together all those diverse interests. and Yeah, it definitely it caters to that full circle. Well, in our last, let's say, five to seven minutes together, I have a few, three main things I want to hit on. One, another time we spoke, Chris, you mentioned to me that you've actually done some work and I don't know, we, we're certainly not going to name names here, but you've all actually done some work in the podcast world. And I just thought that was very interesting. So I wanted to touch on that. I have and still do a fair amount of work for podcasting production companies and talent and some of the distributors as well. I don't want to name names specifically, but that practice did grow out a relationship that the firm had through Buzz Epstein for a long time with WBEZ. And uh, I don't know if you've interviewed Buzz yet. I haven't, but I literally talked to him like two days ago on a client-related issue. So yes. He did work for WBEZ many, 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 starting so long ago that I think Ira Glass was basically brand new at BEZ. And he got brought in to help with matters related to that and ended up representing Ira and doing work directly for him and, and, and WBZ for a long, long time. And that eventually blossomed into helping with Serial and then a number of other very large and well-known, just universally respected podcasts in the birth of podcasting. And he and I work together. He's a litigator and he's, he's a labor and employment lawyer, so helps with a lot of those issues. And he knows media and defamation issues pretty well. And then I often advise on production agreements and how do we structure if you're going to create a production company. I might advise someone who is a talented podcaster who wants to create, break free of whoever their employer is, set up a new production company, then enter into production distribution agreements and everything related to that. That is very neat. Sorry, I had to touch on that while we're on the podcast. And then my last two big questions for you. Because at this point, you know, you started at Foley, you've stayed at Foley, you know, you've developed this, you know, wonderful practice, you made partner, what has kept you at Foley? What is it about Foley and Lardner that you've enjoyed over the years? And this is back to the part where cliche things, anything like that, this is the time to say it is right now. It really is the same thing that brought me here in the first place. And I will say that I started law school later in life and I joined a firm later in life than I think most first year associates. I was 30, I think, when I when I was a first year. I might have been 31. And I knew at that time I had already been through a few different careers and I wanted this to be a place where I could stay for a long time. Amy and I had the exact same goal and made the choice for that reason. And here all these years later, I I look back and it's because of the people, the people who got me here in the first place, they have kept me here all this time. And Michael Small, who I mentioned before, is one of my very best friends now, and he's my partner. And he and I uh, have pitched clients together and spent time with our families together all these years later. It's the people that brought me here, and it's the people who keep me here. Well, and you're, of course, not the first person to say that on the show. And I sometimes remind listeners, I don't tell people what to say. You just happens to be that a good, I'd say 85% of my guests say the people. My final substantive question for you, Chris, is what is your general advice to that person, either contemplating you know, law school or maybe that junior lawyer? What's your advice to them on navigating the legal career? My biggest brief piece of advice is be flexible but have goals. And maybe you could reverse those. I I counter a lot of uh, attorneys now who have a very specific goal of of what they want, 
But then when all of a sudden the environment changes, they, it's as though they've hit a brick wall and don't know, don't know where to go from there. Conversely, I've, I think I probably was too flexible and didn't have goals, have goals coming in. I think it's really is important to combine those two and be ready, be ready to make changes when the economy changes or you have to move to a different city or any number of life events occurs. That is fantastic advice. And then my final, final question is if someone has comments or questions for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. I'm really easy to find. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Chris. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.